Your employer brand relies a lot on the work culture of your institution. But what exactly is the work culture of a college or a university? Kevin McClure joins us on episode two of I Want to Work There to clue us in. No matter the institution, company, or organization, everyone wants to find the best talent and everyone wants to keep their best talent. Higher education is no different. I'm Eddie Francis. I've worked in both talent acquisition and higher ed marketing. On this podcast, we're going to explore the ways to create a great experience for faculty and staff on your campus. Because in education, a great employee experience equals a great student experience. And who doesn't want that? We'll have some honest conversation, get insights from experts, and hear success stories from campuses. It's all about developing an attractive employer brand, something that'll make the people say, I want to work there. Welcome to episode two of I Want to Work There. And just a quick reminder of what this podcast is all about. In November of 2022, I attended the American Marketing Association's Symposium for the Marketing of Higher Education. And there's a quote about branding that I will never forget. It was a session done by Purdue University, Ology Marketing Agency, and Reese's. Yeah, as in Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Yum. And the quote that I heard was, how well a brand is delivered externally depends on how well it's understood internally. And I share that because the conversations on this podcast are all about understanding the honest conversations that need to happen internally in order for an institution's brand to shine as an employer of choice. So with that, I'm pleased to introduce our episode two guest, and you know him if you listen to the Enrollify Podcast Network's family of podcasts. Uh, Kevin McClure, of course, is an associate professor of higher education at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. But the reason I really wanted Kevin on this podcast is his desire to see an improvement in employee well-being at colleges and universities. Here's that interview. Dr. McClure, I presume. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. How are you? Doing great. Thank you so much for having me. You have, uh, from what I, I've heard, uh, that you have a pretty interesting story about how you got into this whole commentary, this running commentary that you have about workplace culture and higher education. So how did you become interested in the topic? Yeah, so the, the, the longer story is that I am an organizations guy. So I, as someone who studies higher education, have, have always focused on kind of the institution level. And through that, have always been really interested in thinking about how higher education organizations respond to challenges and what that means for the people who work there. And so you could say that there was something of a foundation through that uh, where I was kind of constantly thinking about organizational theory and how institutions behave uh, and, and some of the personnel choices and experiences that we might see downstream. But more personally, my story, and, and one that probably will resonate with, with many others, um, starts probably around March, April of 2020. 
And at that point in time, I was just kind of barely making it in my own work environment. So I was coordinating a graduate program, teaching a full course load, advising a bunch of master's and doctoral students, serving on a bunch of university committees, trying to keep up with research. I was doing some public scholarship on the side. I had just recently been in some conversations about a grant funded project that was going to be probably the biggest project that I had ever taken on and uh, was really only a short period of time removed from kind of the, the years leading up to tenure where I had already been pushing pretty hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, we, I, I didn't have a whole lot of bandwidth uh, available when COVID-19 happened. And mm-hmm. so we went into lockdown. And at the time, I don't know about you, but I didn't necessarily think that this was going to be a multi-year experience. And, <laughs> no. <laughs> no. You know, maybe none of us did. And so I, or, or, or a, few of, a few experts out there may have had a sense of where we were going with this. But my thought process, very flawed thought process, by the way, was that we would go into lockdown for a period of time. And then maybe by summer, things yeah. would have kind of calmed. And so because of that, I didn't really dial back on a lot of the things that I was working on. And so I just kind of pushed ahead with everything that I had committed to. I had commitments to students and I had commitments to colleagues. Uh, And so I was just basically trying to still make it all work. Um, We were home with my two kids who were one and three at the time. And so my wife and I would kind of split the days. So I would work part of the day and then take the kids. And then she would work for the other part and take the kids. And... um, we kept going that way for multiple months and I got to May basically and reached just complete burnout. And Mm -hmm. so, um, you know, it wasn't uncommon for me to kind of just crawl across the finish line by the time I got to graduation, but this was at a whole different level. And one of the ways that it kind of popped up was that I wasn't just exhausted, but I also had a certain level of cynicism about Mm -hmm. my work and about my field and the workplace. And that had really never been present before. So through that experience, I of course did what many people do when they experience burnout, which is to kind of blame myself and, Mm -hmm. you know, have a decent amount of shame and question why in the world I hadn't adopted better self-care measures and how in the world did I let this happen? And certainly there were some choices that I made along the way that, in retrospect, kind of put me in a position where burnout was was possible. But the other thing I very quickly realized is that I was responding to a set of expectations and pressures uh, at my work or at my workplace, at my institution that made it very easy for me to say yes to things that rewarded me for continuing to say yes. And yeah. yeah didn't create a lot of affordance for dialing back or saying no. And as you know, our work is oftentimes in connection with other people. It's in collaboration with others. And so you never want to be the person that's going to let down a student or let down a colleague. And so those types of dynamics make it very easy for folks to just kind of say, I've got to do this because I owe it to this person that I care about and I'm going to keep going. 
So I, you know, I went through the next couple of months trying to make sense of how I reached that point of just kind of collapse. And around that time, there was a decent amount of conversation happening about burnout, though it was more at that time kind of focused on healthcare professions. But I started reading that and, uh, you know, it was like going through a checklist and just like checking every item when they were describing, you know, what what burnout is. And the the big aha moment for me was realizing that there are, in fact, for the when scholars have studied burnout, they really think of it as an occupational phenomenon. So this is about workplace culture. It's about working conditions. And it's not about individuals who can't figure out how to cope or haven't figured out how to care for themselves appropriately. Um, And so I was able to kind of piece some of that together, start talking with colleagues, and I felt that we were probably going to be seeing a decent amount of other folks in higher education that were experiencing burnout or very close to it by the time we got to fall of 2020. So I wrote an article that was basically an effort to try to prepare leaders for the fact that the people that were going to be coming to campus in the fall are maybe not the same employees that you would have seen in the past. Mm. That, you know, what mm. they've experienced and what they're dealing with is at a whole different level. And so that kind of became what has now been, as you said, kind of a multi-year exploration, commentary, writing process where... I've just started to continue to ask questions, talk to experts, try to share as much of what I'm learning as I can. Um, and through this, maybe arrive at a place where we have a, a, a better understanding of the higher education workplace, but also a better sense of how we can improve it. So what are your observations uh, when it comes to when it comes to the, the specific culture, the workplace culture of higher education? What have your observations been? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. And it gets a little bit tricky, obviously, because people will rightly point out that we've got lots of different types of institutions uh, with different types of cultures. We've got subcultures within institutions. And so that makes it harder to be able to kind of definitively kind of pinpoint or speak broadly to workplace culture and higher education. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, Broad brushstrokes, there are some good things about workplace culture in higher education. So, you know, we, first of all, for some employees, uh, have shared governance or some ability to participate in decision making. And that doesn't exist in all workplaces. We are structured as what's kind of called a professional bureaucracy. And... (laughs) The only reason why that matters for this conversation is that it means, yes, we've got the hierarchy, definitely, but we also do provide kind of an above average amount of autonomy to employees with the caveat that we do so for those that we kind of consider to be professionals. And so not everybody within the higher education institution is viewed that way and granted that type of autonomy. Um, We've also got certainly a decent amount of affinity, oftentimes within institutions. Sometimes people work at institutions that are from that community. They, their family members have worked there. They have degrees from that institution. Their children have degrees from that institution. And so 
it, it means something to them. You know, that the, the workplace isn't just the workplace. It's kind of a piece of them and their story. But there are, of course, some issues um, and, and issues that I think have directly contributed to the Great Resignation and some of the manifestations of that we have seen. And so that matters because there is still a tendency to want to think about individualized solutions to turnover or disengagement or people who feel like they've kind of lost faith or hope in the enterprise of higher ed. And so looking at organizational culture, looking at workplace culture is really important because it helps us understand that some of these really rise above individuals' feelings or the dynamic they may have with a supervisor. And so, you know, we're talking about, for example, norms of the workplace that are premised on kind of the ideal worker. And so higher education definitely subscribes to this idea that in order to be someone who is rewarded and promoted and viewed as a leader, you have to be all in. You have to be loyal to the institution. You have to be constantly available, answering your phone at all hours, responding to email all the time. You can travel for work whenever needed. Meanwhile, if there are caregiving responsibilities, somebody else does that. Mm -hmm. And so um, obviously that creates issues. Um, one of them being that it's kind of assumes a kind of certain level of disembodiment by mm -hmm. which I mean, people who can be the ideal worker are typically not people who have a chronic illness or have a disability. And so it means that we will fundamentally exclude a certain number of people from awards and promotions and mm -hmm. understandings of leadership because they're not as easily able to fit uh, you know, mm -hmm. that notion. That also intersects with kind of ways in which our organizations are still very gendered. And it's not by coincidence that we see that, you know, cabinet level positions are still primarily men. And it is still the case that many women are penalized for caregiving responsibilities for having children um, within higher education. So culturally, that those that's one kind of package of issues. Um, there's no denying the fact that our institutions have deep roots with our own racist history in the United States. You know, we've got institutions that were founded uh, in order to continue segregation. Um, institutions that, you know, for a very long time excluded women and excluded people of color. And so we still see vestiges of that um, it, within the organization itself and within the organizational culture. You know, certainly at public institutions, but not only at public institutions, we have, I think, operated under a, a culture or a logic of scarcity and mm, austerity. Mm -hmm. And it has meant that a lot of our decision making around communication, transparency, um, what we understand to be problems and strategies worth pursuing are all kind of viewed through this lens of we don't have resources, we'll never have resources. Um, mm. Our route to survival is through cost cutting and or revenue generation. Mm. Um, and so because of that, I think it means that our focus 
is really firmly planted on certain operations and has drifted away from, for example, the employee experience. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. One of the ways that this has popped up is that I think we are in the, in the midst of a moment that is heavily focused on students, student success, and student return on investment. Mm -hmm. These are not bad things, right? I'm all for these things. However, I think it has in some cases meant that we are pursuing these things in ways that do not take into account the employee experience. Mm -hmm. And so it's been possible for us to come up with strategies, pursue goals without really thinking through the labor implications. You know, who's mm -hmm. doing this work? How? Mm -hmm. How are they doing this? What are the resources that we have available to assist them in this? Um, so th there's that dynamic uh, at play. What that has meant is it's been very easy for offices to be understaffed and for compensation to lag yeah. um, and for our aspirations to outpace our infrastructure um, mm -hmm. and resources. All righty. We're going to play a game, guys. Okay. So first and foremost, get a pen, get a paper, pull out your notes app on your phone, whatever it might be. Okay. Got it? Great. All right. What keywords does your website currently rank for? Take a couple seconds, right? One, two, three, four. I give you a few, not just a couple. What doesn't it rank for that you think it should rank for? Okay. One, two, three, four. Now, what are a few keyword opportunities that you could be winning on if you just simply tweaked some of your existing website copy? Got it? Okay. How'd you do? Ooh, not so hot. Not sure what you can, what you're currently ranking for, or not sure what you could be ranking for. Well, that's okay because our friends at DD Agency want to help you answer all of these questions. DD Agency is a higher ed specific marketing technology agency that has conducted countless SEO audits for colleges and universities across the country. In these audits, they detail where you currently rank, what you could be ranking for, exactly how copy should be tweaked on website pages, and so much more. If this sounds like something that you could benefit from, give the guys at DD Agency a ping and be sure to mention that Enrollify sent you to claim a 10% discount on any of their SEO offerings. So head on over to enrollify.org forward slash DDA SEO, that's DDA as in DD Agency SEO, or simply follow the link in the show notes below. That will guarantee you get a 10% discount off of your audit. All right, head on over to enrollify.org slash DDASEO or simply Google DD Agency, find DD Agency's website, and be sure to mention that you heard about them through Enrollify when you request your audit. All right, folks, back to the show. There's a lot in that, um, in that last answer. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to, uh, you know, I, I'm going to offer myself up to the, to the listener and say, Hey, listen, I, I have been to that burnout point. Um, and I think, I think that was what happened with my last opportunity. I had literally checked every single box for burnout. But the thing that is so interesting to me is that, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Definitely that there is one of the strongest pulls to working in higher ed and what makes you a cheerleader for it is the affinity part. Um, and I, I definitely felt that. I definitely felt uh, the shared governance. It feels, though, as if something that kind of compromises someone being a true ambassador of their 
workplace, that college or their university, what compromises it, I think at some point, and, and I've heard a lot of this, is that people feel as if their dedication and their drive and their, their you know, wanting to really help push the mission of the institution. I think some people feel, or a lot of people feel, as if that's used against them at some point. And, you know, not it's not weaponized, but it's definitely leveraged against them in a way that they feel as if leadership is saying, you know, you said you believe in this. You said you believe in this. So I need you to blank, blank, blank. Have you heard that kind of sentiment or have you run across that kind of sentiment in any way from employees, whether they're faculty or staff and maybe even administrators? I've heard it from individuals that I've interviewed and, and also have seen others in, in their writing talking about this. Marcy Walton wrote about the idea of kind of mission-based gaslighting, which oh, wow. is the Jeez. essentially exactly what you're describing, which is kind of um, when someone comes forward with a set of concerns about workload, the response is, this is education. This is what you signed up for. Yeah, it's, it's that you knew what you were getting into sentiment. Yeah. Right. Or, you know, um, when someone kind of comes forward and they say, I haven't had a raise, a meaningful raise in six, seven years, you know, people kind of chuckle and say, why in the world would you expect that? You know, you're working at a community college. That's not what we do here. And you're made to feel foolish and crazy for thinking that, there's a, a conversation to be had about workload issues and compensation issues and, and, you know, God forbid, asking for a raise after, you know, working really hard for the institution. And so, yes, there's, you know, that piece of it. The idea of kind of weaponizing the mission, I think, is also really interesting. And again, I'm, you know, Hopefully people don't read my intent here as trying to like be overly critical of student success, but sometimes sure. the rhetoric around serving students, students come first, you know, student success is, is our top priority. The function of that rhetoric sometimes is to make it so that the expectation is that we do literally everything that we possibly can in service of students. And so, you know, scholars that have studied student affairs have have noted for years that that notion is what leads to people who who feel like they have to be present for students 24/7. You know, they have to be able to be working nights and evenings and going above and beyond the council and advise students in ways that can compromise their own well-being. And so, Again, you know, the, the idea that we're serving students well, that we're providing them with high quality education, that we want them to finish, these are all wonderful things. But there is a way that I think it's possible for institutions to pursue that and in the process set up these expectations around our labor and our time. And the priority isn't my well-being. Instead, it's what am I doing? What more could I be doing to serve students? And so I think that can sometimes set up kind of, I think it makes it easy for us to, as you and I have experienced, to reach that point where we have given everything and 
There's nothing left to give. And ironically, guess who are the folks that are going to suffer the most from that yeah. setup? You know, it's, it's going to be the when I reached yeah. burnout, that was bad for my advisees. You know, I wasn't there for them while I recovered. And so, you know, when we are pushing employees, when we are setting up offices that are understaffed, that are just stretched too thin, you know, we can talk all day about student success, but we got to look at the material resources and they're not there all the time. Um, and if we've pushed people to burnout, they're not there. They're not there to be responsive to student needs. You had this really interesting uh, um, response about students and how interestingly enough, if you have people who are dissatisfied employees, that does affect the, the, the students. As a matter of fact, I know of a case in which a group of students made a group of student demands. And among those demands was they demanded higher pay for facilities workers because they were sick of facilities not being able to fulfill their work orders and and they found out why they they found out that they were dealing with some disgruntled facilities people in an understaffed facilities area so they actually wound up making this part of student demands but, but with that being said so are there any specific ways that you have gotten any kind of feedback or you've heard observations about how um how a a, a compromised workplace culture can affect students in other ways. You mentioned that your burnout affected the students. Are there any specific ways that you can point out that students are affected? Yeah, for sure. So first of all, our student, students can be incredibly astute and yeah. they, they notice things very easily. You know, the example that you provided there is, is an easy one where they say, I'm trying to get food at the dining hall and it's incredibly complicated because there's not enough people working there. Those types of things they, they pick up on very quickly. They're trying to work with a faculty member and they get the sense that that faculty member is not responsive. They are always stressed. They seem like they're just barely keeping it together. And so, yeah, some students, their response to that might be, that professor is awful, I'm never taking them again. Other students may come to office hours have a conversation with them and then quickly realize that that person is, you know, teaching a lot of courses, advising a ton of students. They are everywhere around campus contributing as best they can. And so students understand that this isn't about an individual or this isn't a professor shirking responsibility. This is a professor that's exhausted and, and trying their best. So yeah, but you know, there is an interesting letter to the editor, or rather it was written by the editorial board of the student newspaper at UCLA. And it was basically arguing that the university needed to invest in its employees. It kind of echoes the example you raised there of a students that were saying we need to better pay facilities workers. And it wasn't purely for self-serving reasons either. I think to their credit, students are taking the courses that we teach and they are becoming critical thinkers and they're asking themselves, what kind of workplace do I want for myself? Some of them are employees of the university themselves. They are resident assistants. They are working in unions. And so they're getting a flavor of how the place operates. And I think through some of those experiences are, are asking some really tough questions about where our actions line up with our espoused values. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And 
students have a really, really great way of holding up a mirror for the institution and being courageous and saying, what are you all about? Mm-hmm. This yeah. is what your mission statement says. This is what the strategic plan says. Here's what I'm seeing. And how am I supposed to reconcile these things? Because they're not all adding up. And so I think the, the student dimension of this is really interesting and really important because what it suggests to me is that I think for a while there, there may have been some folks in leadership positions, some boards that were not always inclined to move on issues of workplace culture because they said, well, our priority is over here with the students. Well, what happens when the students come over and they say, no, we agree with the faculty and the staff here. We've got an issue. And I think it forces the hand of leaders in a different kind of way. It has been very interesting for me to see recently with some of the undergraduate students that have decided to organize and in some case go on strike. And then similarly with graduate students that the institutions, you know, the ones that say we put students first have uh, not been particularly friendly (laughs) towards Mm. students that are organizing uh, and have been, you know, quick to try to say these are employees and not students. Uh, And so it does toss out the window, the idea that students come first when there is that kind of clear animosity towards students that are asking for living wages, for example. So let's let's talk about the way forward uh, for for colleges and universities. I mean, fortunately, one of the narratives of colleges and universities is, well, we don't have that many resources. So, hey, that's where you are. So thinking about what colleges and universities can do working within their resources, working within the capacity that they do have, how can, what do you see as far as colleges and universities making uh, moves so that they are attractive places to work so that ultimately we do what we all want to do? We, we do serve these students. How does that look to you? What do you think? Well, I'm, I'm writing a book exactly about this. So everyone who's listening, just so you know, Eddie was not paid to, to set this up uh, in this way. But yeah, so as someone who is interested in organizations and kind of focus at the institution level, I have been thinking really about organizational change that's going to help us to reimagine the higher education workplace. What that means for me is that there are a set of issues beyond institutions that are really important that play into how we go about organizing colleges and universities and the rules that we have to follow. And that stuff is hard to change, right? I mean, a given college president is probably not going to be able to dismantle racism, and they're probably not going to be able to make huge strides in the state house that lead to a windfall of resources. So the question, your question really is, I think, for me, where a lot of the action can can reasonably happen, which is at that organizational level. And because a lot of the issues that we're talking about, in my view, are organizational problems of the workplace, it means we should be thinking about kind of organizational solutions. So 
as a couple of examples, one is one that's relatively easy, I think, and does not necessarily require a ton of resources is that we have been able to get away for get get away with not really collecting any kind of data on the employee experience. Um, part of that, I think, is that for many years, we've kind of banked on the idea that if someone was unhappy, rather than try to figure out why, they left and we just hired somebody else. There was right. potentially always somebody there that we could tap. And these days, that's not the case, right? There are lots of positions where that has become a lot harder. And so we have... I think even more reason to be asking, what do we know about the employee experience? Mm-hmm. The kind of HR data landscape in higher ed is a hot mess. It's just fragmented. A lot of it's proprietary. You have to buy into or subscribe or pay for it. You know, interestingly, institutions are full of smart people who know how to do research that we don't really tap all that often for, you know, these purposes. And so I'd like to move one one day. Somebody's going to have to explain that to me because as someone coming from the private sector and the higher ed, I just never understood why is it we don't get the people who are within the institution who know how to collect and analyze data to collect and analyze data Thank you for saying it from the faculty side. I appreciate it. Yes. That. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of folks that are, are ready. And you know, I am leading a group of my colleagues right now. We're doing a study of um, kind of workplace culture within my own college. And, you know, the group I brought together are folks that were really excited about it. They really, you know, they found connections cool. to their own work and, you know, they see ways that this will be good for them professionally, but but a way that they can contribute meaningfully. And so... You know, there's some opportunities there, but even if you didn't want to go in-house, you know, the truth of the matter is that the private sector is like light, light years ahead of us in terms of like, you know, better documenting and collecting data around the employee experience, trying to draw insights from that, developing a talent strategy and really building kind of this idea of talent and trying to nurture talent into the strategic goals of the institution. Y'all can tell me if I'm very wrong about this, but I've been spending a lot of time recently looking at strategic plans for institutions and been struck by the fact that very few of them actually talk about faculty and staff, at least in terms of faculty and staff working conditions. They may talk about, we want faculty to do more research. They may say, we want this to be kind of vaguely like a destination workplace, but that's really like, you know, about it. And so we could just do a better job of prioritizing the employee experience and realizing that doing so is good for our ability to achieve the goals that we set for ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's an easy one. Compensation obviously is a harder one resource wise, but I just want to note that compensation matters. <laughs> it's important. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, it is something that we have to figure out. We have to figure out the, not just compensation, but also benefits, um, inequities around those. And so some of it is not just, we need more across the board for everybody. Some of it is we've got some real disparities here that again, don't really line up with our values. Um, I talk a lot about professional pathways and professional development. This is again, one that can involve resources, but I think there are ways to pursue it that are not super resource intensive. Um, Because again, we've got a lot of in-house 
experts in professional learning and communication and business management. All of this, I think, can be purposefully built into kind of a professional development. I mean, we are we are teaching and learning organizations that outsource the majority of our professional development to other organizations. And so, you know, it just, there's a certain level of absurdity to that it, for me um, where we could just be doing a lot more around training and building up our own staff and faculty in ways that are good for us professionally, but good for the institution as well. Um, the last one I'll mention, I've got others, but I don't, you know, I don't want to over overwhelm folks, but the other, another one that I've been thinking a lot about, well, first of all, this could be a whole other conversation, you know, issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, you can't really build a caring workplace culture without addressing those and addressing them structurally. And so there's a lot there I recognize. The other one that I was going to mention is around basically leadership development and how we prepare leaders. Um, I think that we do some really good things around leadership development. And I think we've got some folks that are really good mentors. And I think there are some outstanding programs out there that people can attend. And, you know, through a combination of that and their experiences become good leaders. But we also do a lot of like throwing people in and yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. What hap- we, I mean, I'm a faculty member and, and we do a lot of tapping faculty for roles because they have been effective faculty members. Those skills don't always match up. Like you may have been a great lab manager and maybe those are, are some good leadership skills, but that fact alone, in my view, doesn't mean that you're going to make for an outstanding associate dean. But sometimes that's like the key criterion that we <laughs> use for these things. And so there's room for improvement, certainly, around how we nurture leaders and um, reward people who want to become leaders. Um, so those are a few of the ways that I think we can we can help to address some of these workplace issues at, at an organizational level that will make a real difference for employees. And certainly it's, it doesn't fix everything, right? My goal in all this, by the way, is not that we're going to reach like some sort of ideal state. Right. Yeah. That's, that's not going to happen. Like we're not, we're not aiming for perfection. I actually have a fairly low bar. I want institutions to try. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If we could just try, that would be great. And uh, I struggle sometimes. There are certain dimensions of this where I'm really trying, working hard, looking for examples to include in my book. And, and I'm regularly asking people for, you know, are you doing creative things around this? Are you working on this? And um, it is sometimes difficult to find examples of these things happening. And that's, so that's for me why I'm like, for me, it's about the effort. It, it, it's about the trying. And if we can make this at least a priority enough where we say, we're going to try some things, we're going to pilot it, we're going to take some steps toward this. I will see that as positive movement that, again, we will start to see the, feel the effects of as employees. Dr. Kevin McClure, he is an associate professor of higher education in the Department of Educational Leadership in the Watson College of Education at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Hey, uh, thanks a lot so much for joining us on I Want to Work There uh, and definitely looking forward to the book coming up. And no, he's right. We did not plan this whole book thing. Thank you so much. The book's not even finished yet. So, you know, 
if anybody has questions, just give me a little more time to write and then I'll let you, I'll let y'all know when, when you can bring me back and then I'll do like a whole promotion thing. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> and many thanks to Kevin McClure for joining me on. I want to work there. If you want to find out more about Kevin, go to his website at Dr. Kevin R. McClure dot com and you'll be able to connect with him at his social links there as well all of that information is in the show notes i want to work there is part of the enrollify podcast network if you like this podcast check out other enrollify shows the enrollify podcast network is growing by the month with all kinds of marketing admissions and higher ed technology shows and they're jam-packed with stories ideas and frameworks all designed to empower you to be a better higher ed professional. There are some great industry voices that you can check out like Terry Flannery, my good friend Jamie Hunt, Allison Tercio, Corinne Myers, Dustin Ramsdale, Jamie Gleason, and many more. Learn more about the Enrollify Podcast Network at podcasts.enrollify.org. Our shows help higher ed marketers and admissions professionals find their next big idea. So uh, come and find yours. <laughs>